Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Huntley Rail Bridge bombing in New Zealand. The Huntley Rail Bridge bombing as it was known occurred on the Glen Afton or Arawa branch near Huntley, New Zealand around 3am on the 30th of April 1951 when higher explosives were set off on a railway bridge. The bombing took place amid the 1951 New Zealand waterfront dispute, an industrial dispute over the working conditions and wage of dock workers. Characterised by the then Prime Minister Sidney Holland as an act of terrorism, the bombing caused no casualties, even though a morning passenger train ran over the weakened bridge. The perpetrators' identities remain unknown. And now we get into the Waikato Coalfields and Trade Unions. Coal was first mined from the Waikato Coalfields west of Huntley in 1849. By 1951, both pit underground and open cast surface mining techniques were being used. Depending on the mine and mining techniques used, the 1500 Waikato miners were members of either the larger National United Mine Workers Union, who worked the pit mines, or the smaller local Northern Miners Union, who worked some of the open cast mines. Small disputes during 1950 had revealed different attitudes both between and within the union memberships. Now we get into the 1951 waterfront dispute. On the 13th of February 1951, the National Executive of the New Zealand Waterside Workers' Union decided its members would only work a 40-hour week and imposed an overtime ban. In response, the employers stood the men down until the following Saturday. By the 21st of February, the government had passed emergency regulations and declared a state of national emergency. By the 27th of February, most of the Waikato miners were on strike in support of the watersiders and members of various unions refusing to work brought mining at most Waikato mines to a standstill. The 1951 New Zealand waterfront dispute was the largest and most widespread industrial dispute in New Zealand's history. During the time, up to 20,000 workers went on strike in support of waterfront workers protesting against financial hardships and poor working conditions. Thousands more refused to handle scab goods. The dispute was sometimes referred to as the waterfront lockout or waterfront strike. It lasted 151 days from the 13th of February to the 15th of July of 1951. During the strike, the Watersiders Union was deregistered and its funds and records were seized, and 26 local Watersiders Unions were set up in its place. In reviewing the biography of Jock Barnes, then president of the Waterside Workers' Union, reviewer Tony Simpson described the lockout as a key element in the mythologies of the industrial left in this country. End quote. Now we get into the backgrounds of this dispute. 
The distance of Australia and New Zealand from their traditional markets meant that ports played a pivotal role in the economies of the countries. The waterfront inevitably became a point of conflict between workers and their unions on one side and the employers and the state on the other. During the Second World War, due to labour shortages, watersiders and other workers worked long hours, often as much as 15-hour days. However, in working American ships, the waterside workers had also been exposed to new work methods and technologies that were commonplace on American wharves. British ship owners were reluctant to invest in these new methods and expected watersiders to get, get go back to the traditional methods in use before the war, but the union resolved that work practices needed to change. Following the war on the wharves, working hours continued to be high, with ship owners expecting up to 59 hours a week to be worked. In the immediate post-war period, one of the main goals of the Waterside Workers' Union was to have a guaranteed weekly wage and a 40-hour, 5-day work week between the hours of 8am and 5pm without night or weekend overtime. Dissatisfaction with the Waterfront Industry Commission's refusal to accept the Waterside's proposal led to ongoing waterfront disputes over several years. The Waterside Workers' Union struggle led to the criticism from the Federation of Labor, FOL, that the union's actions might not be in the best interests of its members and posed a risk to the whole labor movement. At the November 1949 general election, a conservative National Party government came to power. While the new government's opposition to militant unionism probably made an industrial confrontation inevitable, the outgoing Labour government's earlier decision to hold a referendum on compulsory military service in August of 1949 had been seen by many trade unionists who opposed conscription as a betrayal of their socialist beliefs. In April of 1950, the Waterside Workers' Union led a walkout of the FOL and set up their own trade union congress, unwittingly isolating themselves from the general union movement. Shortly afterwards, severe stoppages on the wharves occurred, infuriating most of the general population. In early September, Wellington Watersiders refused to work on a cargo of Lamp Black. This dispute eventually led to Watersiders at all ports stopping work. On the 19th of September, the government warned it would declare a state of emergency the following day if watersiders did not return to work the next morning. Late that evening, Labour Party leader Peter Fraser intervened and a deputation of union leaders met with Prime Minister Holland. Although a state of emergency existed between the 20th of September and the 4th of October while negotiations took place, this meeting had opened the way to a settlement. On the 31st of February 1951, the Arbitration Court issued a general wage order to increase wages by 15% for workers covered by the industrial arbitration system. The order took effect on the 15th of February 1951, but was backdated to awards as they stood at the 7th of May 1950, and also cancelled a 5% interim wage order the court had previously issued in June of 1950 that had taken effect from the 8th of May 1950. Awards for freezing workers and two other unions that had recently received substantial increases were excluded. In reaching its decision, the arbitration court said it had to consider equity for workers, the stability of the New Zealand economy, terms of trade with Britain, as well as inflation planetary pressure. The compromise decision was recognised as inadequate by the union's representative, while the employer's representative dissented considering it inflanetary. This increase did not apply to waterside workers whose employment was controlled by the Waterfront Industry Commission, or the WIC. The shipping companies that employed the watersiders instead offered 9%, the difference between the 6% wage increase that had previously been awarded to the watersiders after the interim wage order and the general wage order. The watersiders then refused to work overtime in protest, and the employers placed the man on a two-day penalty. The men said it was a lockout, the employers said it was a strike. When the waterside workers' union refused to accept 
accept arbitration, the government could make a stand on the principle of defending industrial law and order. Now we get to the overtime ban. On the 8th of February 1951, in protest to the employer's wage offer, the Wellington and New Plymouth branches, the Waterside Unions, unilaterally decided to impose overtime bans at their ports and asked other branches to do the same. The union executive met on the 13th of February to consider the responses from branches about the wage increase and at 2pm sent telegrams to all branches advising to impose an overtime ban from 5pm onwards. Upon being advised of this, the employers advised that if the overtime ban continued the next day, then the workers would be stood down for two days as a penalty and could only be eligible for work again on Saturday morning. While workers at Auckland and Wellington were not asked to work overtime on the 14th of February due to Harbour Board employees at those ports holding meetings, workers at other ports were penalised for refusing overtime. On the 15th of February, workers at Auckland and Wellington ports also refused overtime and were penalised. The union claimed the employers' actions were a lockout because while union members were willing to work 40 hours a week, the employers were only allowing them to work 16 hours a week. The Minister of Labour, Bill Sullivan, then invited representatives of both the union and employers to meet with him and the then acting Prime Minister Keith Holyoke on the morning of the 16th in an attempt to resolve the dispute. Now we're going to get into the lockout. The lockout was a major political issue of the time. The national government, led by Sidney Holland and the Minister of Labour, Bill Sullivan, introduced heavy-handed emergency regulations and brought in the Navy and Army to work the wharves and also deregistered the Waterside Workers' Union under the Industrial Conciliation and Arbitration Act. Under the emergency regulations, Holland's government censored the press, made striking illegal, and even made it illegal to give money or food to either strikers or their families. The proclamations have been described as the most illiberal legislation ever enacted in New Zealand. In a surprise move, the FOL, which was supported by the majority of unions, backed the government. FOL President Fintan Patrick Walsh was of the opinion that the manner of the strike threatened the existing arbitration system, necessitating their defeat. The Watersiders held out for 22 weeks, supported by many other unions and sympathy strikers, but ultimately conceded defeat. The miners and seamen who held sympathy strikes were likewise beaten. As a result, the Waterside Workers' Union was split up into 26 separate port unions to deliberately diminish its influence. Many Watersiders and other unionists involved were blacklisted, e.g. Jock Barnes and Toby Hill, and prevented from working on the wharves for years afterwards. Now we come to the outcome of this dispute. Holland condemned the actions as industrial anarchy and explicitly sought a mandate to deal with the lockout by calling a snap election. The opposition Labour Party, now led by Walter Nash, attempted to take a moderate position in the dispute, with Nash saying that we are not for the waterside workers and we are not against them. Labour's neutral position merely ended up displeasing both sides, however, and Nash was widely accused of indecision and lack of courage. The government was re-elected with an increased majority in the ensuing 1951 election. Holland was seen as opportunistically using the strike to distract voters from the other issue of rapidly rising inflation, which could have made the scheduled election in 1952 harder for him to win. Militant unionism in New Zealand was crushed and the union movement remained fractured for years between the FOL and the defeated militants. The Labour Party was likewise split between the ardent anti-communists led by Bob Simple and Angus McLagan and the moderates such as Walter Nash and Arnold Nordmeyer. There was a concurrent tension between the FOL and the Labour Party for many years following the strike. Much later, it also emerged, interestingly enough, that the families of both Keith Locke and Mark Blumsky were under surveillance by the Special Police Branch, which is now the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service, or NZSIS. 
Now we're going to get into the loyalty cards. After the dispute was over, the deregistered Waterside Workers Union issued loyalty cards to those who'd remained loyal to the union during the dispute. Many retained their cards, and at a university dinner in 1976, admission was by card only. Now we come to the official history and coal shortage. In the wake of the dispute, Dick Scott, editor of the union's magazine Transport Worker, wrote an official history of the strike on behalf of the deregistered union. The New Zealand Federation of Labour annual conference in 1954 condemned the book for its derogatory statements and factual omissions. Scott's credentials to attend the conference as a union delegate were also challenged, and he was called upon to withdraw and apologise, which he refused to do, and was censored as a result. The book was reprinted in 1978. By the start of March 1951, Waikato Dairy Companies dependent on local coal were reporting they had a week to 10 days supply left. Initially, the Auckland Gas Company expected it would be able to maintain gas supplies. Yet, by the 12th of March, the company said it could only maintain gas supplies for three meal periods a day for 17 days after receiving a fresh shipment of coal, while half the retort house workers were dismissed after they refused duty and walked out. Even though the Waikato open-cast miners returned to work at the beginning of April 1951, this came came too late for the freighter Leuchbank, which had been in Auckland's port since the 18th of February and had to load 150 tonnes of firewood instead of unobtainable bunker coal so that it could sell for the Leighton to discharge its remaining cargo. Now we're going to get into the bombing that occurred. In 1951, during this New Zealand waterfront dispute and strike, six sticks of gelignite were detonated on a railway bridge near Mahuta at the Rotuaro end of the Glen Afton branch line, three miles from Huntley. While the bridge was severely damaged, the explosives had been set against the grain of the bridge's hardwood timbers in half-inch diameter holes, causing bridge piles and stringers to be dislodged and splintered. They did remain intact, however. Had the explosives been set with the rain, the bridge might well have been demolished. Although residents as far away as Huntley heard an explosion about 3am on Monday the 30th of April 1951, and some men boarding the 7.30am train from Huntley to the local coal fields were talking about the explosions they had heard overnight, the train crew were not aware the bridge had been damaged before the train rounded a bend in the track, and the driver saw warning sleepers laid on the track. Although he immediately applied the brakes and slowed the train, the locomotive struck the sleepers and crossed the bridge, which rocked noticeably along with the leading three wagons before coming to rest with a guard's van which was in front of the passenger carriages on the bridge. The train crew inspected the bridge and saw it had been damaged by explosives only then realising it was a result of the early morning explosion. As they considered that most of the train's weight had already crossed the bridge safely, the crew decided to continue but stopped and inspected the remaining bridges before crossing them. Since the branch line connected the four open cast mines and several pits in the Waikato coalfields with the Huntley Township and the railway line, newspapers initially reported the railway line line had been cut. While the government's position was that the attempted sabotage of the bridge was intended to disrupt coal supplies, local police suggested it was more likely an attempt to frighten and intimidate open-cast mine workers. Although police made extensive inquiries in the area, noting that high explosives were used in the mines and elsewhere, so would not be hard to obtain, and with many people keeping plugs of gel ignite at home for various purposes, no arrests were reported. Trains were reported as running normally, but with railway employees patrolling the line before each train. The bridge sabotage was sought to have been carried out by coal miners, operating without the knowledge or support of the trade unions involved in the industrial actions. 
While reporting restrictions in place at the time might have constrained New Zealand reporting, Australian newspapers were under no such restrictions. Many Australian newspapers carried an April 30th report about the passenger train crossing the bridge about four hours after the explosion of six dynamite shots had damaged the piles and stringers of the bridge. Also reporting the explosion had failed to destroy the bridge because the charges were laid against the grain of the wood. Speculation about who might have committed the deed were many and varied. While many Australian newspapers were happy to watch from afar, more in-depth and independent journalistic investigation was limited. At least one later author speculated that the charges were carefully misplaced with the intention of only a warning to open-cast miners who were working. Now we come to the reaction. Upon hearing the news, Prime Minister Sidney Holland denounced the bombing, calling it an infamous act of terrorism, as well as a diabolical act of sabotage and part of a desperate Cold War. Holland announced an investigation, but the identities of the perpetrators were never discovered. In an evening radio broadcast on the 1st of May, Prime Minister Holland announced that the government had decided to form the Civil Emergency Organisation to assist the police and called for male volunteers to register with their local city, borough or county council or town board from 10am the following morning. Even before Holland's broadcast had ended, local mayors were receiving telephone calls from volunteers. By the 3rd of May, over 12,000 volunteers were estimated to have registered. He described the bridge sabotage as a tactic to stop urgently needed coal from reaching the people's fireplaces and said it was miraculous that the attempt was not accompanied by a serious loss of life. The civil emergency organisation ceased operation at the end of the waterfront dispute. The then leader of the opposition, Labour's Walter Nash, also condemned the sabotage and called on law-abiding citizens to cooperate with the authorities to apprehend the perpetrators and prevent further acts. A leader of the striking miners knew nothing about the sabotage attempt and appealed for all miners to refrain from provocative acts. The local police sergeant was shocked and disappointed by the sabotage and the open-cast mine workers thought it a senseless act. Historians' opinions are also varied. Richardson, in his History of the United Mine Workers Union, accepts the police's assessment that the sabotage was an attempt to intimidate the open-cast miners, and that Holland exploited the opportunity the event presented to announce the formation of the Civil Emergency Organization. Beth, writing in Tiara, however, argues that the act was one of sabotage rather than terrorism, and the probable target was property, and the intention was the disruption of supplies rather than achieving a political aim through terror. To this day, Bomber's identity remains unknown, and they've never been found. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. The Peter Bergman case, as it became known, pertains to the mysterious death of an unidentified man in Sligo County, Sligo, Ireland, on or around 16th of June 2009. 